there's always questions that people have. It's like, oh, this is, I want to know this. I want to know whether or not um, younger consumers will like my product. Right? Or I want to know whether or not uh, my product is consumed during the day or at night. Like simple questions like that. And what we did is we said, okay, we, I want you to flip that. I want you to turn it into a hypothesis. I want you to say, I believe that my product is consumed by, boom. I believe that my product is consumed during the day. And you sort of turn it away from questions because questions, there's always more questions. You turn it into a hypothesis, a belief of how right or wrong it is. And then you go down all of those beliefs and you say, well, how confident am I in this? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I am Chris LeBeau. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, going to start a trend courtesy of a uh, recent guest, Chris Tunstall, and saying at the top of every episode, if you're a listener and love the show, I'd love it right now if you take a little pause, write us a quick review. It really helps kind of spread the word, and thanks for indulging that. My guest today tells me that he's used to having his name butchered by uh, Americans, and yet I uh, hope to do it a little bit of justice. My guest is Martin Lodvigs. He is the director of consulting for IWSR. What is IWSR, you ask? As they put it on their website, they've been leading the, the leading source of data on the global beverage alcohol market for over 50 years. They are used by all sorts of beverage brands, investment groups, and more for guidance on the state of the industry. As Martin will talk about a bit, for a long time, their focus has been on market intelligence and analysis. Uh, they've more recently moved into customer sentiment. Not just so, not just quantities and growth, but also what people are feeling. Uh, brands sometimes work with IW, uh, IWSR to gain insights on how they might best grow their product offering, the part of the market they're in, where maybe they should expand to, and more. The first thing I want to say about this conversation is I loved that Martin was quick to point out that while he is a data geek through and through, that it isn't always accurate. Uh, or it can be manipulated. We can see things in it that aren't there. Uh, so we can't always treat it as fact. And that it can, of course, be twisted to what we want it to say. Data is valuable, but we must practice our critical thinking skills when leaning on it. And he was also quick to say that we can get lost in looking at it as opposed to ever making a decision. There are a couple of, of highlights worth pointing out at the top of this. Martin says there are two big macro trends that have been playing out in the industry for a long while. The first one is health and wellness, and the second one is premiumization. So what is interesting about these two trends, consumers thinking more about their health and the quality of the product they're consuming, is that this in part has led to the premiumization of products. Uh, not one for one related, but you can think about the idea that at least in our minds, more expensive products are, are perhaps better for you. And this is probably directionally true, but we all know that it's not always true. Uh, but our guts can tell us that as something is of a higher price point, that it's probably just made from better stuff. Um, along the health and wellness front, we also talk about the no and low alcohol movement. Uh, and the muse on the shift in drinking trends by younger generations and how this is really beginning to spread. You know, how far out will this go? And nobody knows is, of course, the answer at this point in time. Another thing that is important to consider here is that, as Martin puts it, trends may be true-ish in the macro health and wellness and premiumization, but there is a lot of nuance to them. 
So to say everyone is drinking less or everyone cares about additives in a product is simply not true. So again, to think about that these trends are big moving objects, but there's a lot of detail to them. So knowing that many of you work for smaller brands or restaurants, I leaned on Martin a bit for thoughts on how these might play out in your business. So we talk a little bit a bit about, for especially at the restaurant level, for example, uh, you already have lots of sales data that tells you what are people buying. Uh, but one of the things he said that is interesting is think about turning your staff into uh, survey and data collectors. What is a question or two that they could be asking when serving a customer that could help you add more qualitative input to how you think about potential expansions, new, new menu offerings, etc.? The second is in regard to giving attention to, to macro trends that we've already talked about. You don't have to follow them, but you should always be aware of them. How could these potentially sneak up on you? Uh, and after we stopped recording, Martin pointed out that counter trends can also be big. You know, there is nothing health and wellness related or premium about Fireball, and yet it is hugely popular, right? The same goes for things like PBR, Montucky Cold Snack, and Stag. Are you leaning towards the trend or deliberately live, leaning away from it to kind of uh, draw attention to yourself? Uh, this is a great conversation. Martin will also talk about a few of their reports you can access. Uh, IWSR is more active on uh, social platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. Do I really have to say X? I don't know. But their website, the IWSR.com, is a great place to start. Thanks for tuning in today and uh, enjoy this conversation with Martin. So Martin, I remember uh, when IWSR, so being still being a relative newbie to the beverage world of a handful of years, I remember last year I was headed to uh, Tales of the Cocktail and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, a woman was going to be speaking about it. And that was the first time I'd ever seen IWSR come online. And, you know, I've seen from your portfolio listed online that uh, certainly a, a number of larger brands are who you guys work with. But tell us a little bit about the data services that IWSR provides to to the beverage industry. Yeah, sure. I'll actually be at Tales of the Cocktail this year, if you're there. Um, I'll, I'll be speaking this year, I think. Um, yeah, so IWSR, we've been around for about 50 years. Uh, it's a pretty long time. And it's been the sort of core of the business has remained largely unchanged, which is a granular um, volumetric volume and value uh, at the brand level for beverage alcohol across all categories. Um, so what I think what differentiates that's a bit is the data collection is kind of still done in, in some ways in an old fashioned manner, searches on the ground. So we actually have our researchers will travel to the countries and talk to people there, they'll talk to retailers, they'll talk to distributors, they'll talk to um, all manner of, of shops to kind of hear from them what's moving, what's not, to get a sense for what the volumes are. Obviously they'll ask for the data, some people share, some people don't, but they sort of use that to compile a perspective on what the, the consumption is. So we were trying to report out uh, consumer pool uh, at the brand level. And so that gets then rolled up into subcategories, which get rolled up into macro categories. And so we have data that's going back um, a good uh, 35 years in a consistent format that is really powerful for uh, analyzing trends and evolution, because you can kind of look, I mean, even though we have the brand data, we tend to look a bit more at the subcategories to see sort of what's moving, what's not, what's up, what's down, and that tends to be where um, our clients get the most value. And you're right, we tend we, we work with pretty much all of the major multinationals. And when I say pretty much, I think I can safely say we work with all of the major multinationals. Um, a, we're a little bit more skewed towards the spirits industry. Um, so spirits and wine, that was sort of where we originated. And then we've moved into beer. We've improved our beer database now. I think we're pretty much at the top of the game there as well. And so we've got a good total beverage alcohol perspective across uh, 156 markets globally. So we're really used as a strategic tool 
Um, it's not a uh, point of sale database. So we're not trying to look at what volume moved in a particular state last week. Um, it's very much a macro strategic tool to understand like how is the category evolving um, over time. And then we've fairly recently in the last few years supplemented that with uh, consumer research division. So we acquired a consumer research company. And so alongside our uh, industry data, we now do um, longitudinal consumer tracking. So understanding sentiment, consumer perceptions of categories. Um, that's not the brand level because it's, I mean, there's just too many brands. You couldn't possibly track that um, at the international level. So it's sort of, we used to always have the what, we still have the what, and now we're supplementing that a bit more with the why. Yeah, I uh, I read a little bit about that and I'll look forward to digging in. So have you found, Martin, that, you know, beverage has obviously been a massive industry for a long time, but I think it's also fair to say that some of these industries are continue to grow up more and more in terms of how they think strategically about deploying products. So do you see the demand for such services really improving as people try to figure out what to deploy and where, as opposed to just this feels right? Like, do you feel like brands are less shooting from the hip these days and being much more strategic about those things or hard to say? And we don't need to th mention any names either. So, <laughs> I was going to say, I think it depends. Uh, it depends quite a bit on the, the brand owners themselves. Um, companies have a culture, right? They have a personality. Some are going to be more data oriented and data uh, centric and will be more informed by what the data says and others tend to be a little bit more organic uh, try and understand a bit more the consumer sentiment so there's definitely a, a diversity of approach but I mean as a sort of general rule of thumb the bigger the company the more likely they are to be data first um, you just can't run uh, an oil tanker uh, with with a, a tiny little rudder, you kind of, you need those, those macro views. So they'll have a lot more resource in understanding those trends. And I mean, to your question, I think they very much will use it. The bigger, the bigger clients will use it to understand um, interesting new categories because they're always looking to diversify the portfolio. So any exposure, if you're overly exposed to a particular category, that's bad. Uh, no one likes that. When the category turns, the analysts always factor that in. So the diversification of the portfolio gets factored into how they look at the those companies. Um, and so they're always looking for like, what's the next big thing? So we'll often get questions from clients like, all right, great. I'm in tequila. Tequila's growing. What's the next tequila? Um, not that we know. I would love to know. Um, but certainly have a kind of a perspective on sort of what's growing. So that's how the, the bigger guys will use it to make sure that they can be ahead of the curve to have products in place. And it's not just categories, it can be markets. So back to the tequila point, we equally get asked, great, the US is 75% of tequila volume. Um, what's next? Right? If you add Mexico, it's 90%. So where is it going to grow? Because we have faith in the category and we think it's going to grow, but we need to know where, where to deploy those brands. So that's then the next big question because up until now, tequila growth has been limited by the fact that there's a certain allocation and that allocation goes to the US because why would you send it anywhere else? It's going to cost more and the return on that is going to be less because Americans will pay significantly more for a bottle of tequila than an Australian or a French person or someone else. So that's how the bigger guys use it. The smaller guys will because they've got their strategic questions are at a slightly lower level because they haven't yet like explored the full boundaries of what they're able to do. The, the use cases tend to be in some ways similar, but just a little bit more specific. So within the US context, we'll often get clients reaching out saying, hey, look, I've got a great portfolio in, in 10 states. Like, where should I go next? So it's the, in, in, in many ways, it's the same question, right? Because the US is so big that each state could be considered a country and laws will, will differ. Um, and so they'll sort of say, well, like, what state should I go into next? Or what sort of subcategory of US whiskey? Like, I've got a bourbon. Should I go into rye? Should I go into Tennessee? Should I go into flavored? Like, where should I expand that portfolio? So 
they'll often be same, the same questions just at a much lower scale. So along those lines, Martin, like knowing that you kind of in part oversee the U.S. market for IWSR, um, you know, and yes, to your point, I always like to say it's like, you know, Manhattan is not the same as El Paso, Texas, you know, at all. But are there, yeah, but to some of the trends, because I know you guys put out at the very beginning of 2023, a kind of like kind of eight, eight or eight or 10 trends to watch. Are there a couple of things And I feel like some of them will probably be, you know, could be eye opening. Some of them people are going to be like, duh, but like, but what are a couple of the, the major trends you guys are seeing at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, trends is such a funny thing because they, when you kind of look back, they really don't change much. Um, it's sort of, I guess, almost the weight, the weight of the trends changes more. Or maybe a, another way of saying it, the, the, the nuance to the trend is what evolves. So, I mean, within beverage alcohol, we know that the, probably the single biggest fact impacting the industry more so in the US, but not exclusively. It tends to be a fairly global, or let me re rephrase, a fairly um, developed market trend is sort of the reduction in consumption of alcohol. And there's sort of two, two facets to that. The first is just getting less people in to the category, which is younger consumers, Gen Z, have a different attitude to alcohol than prior generations. Um, many debates and conversations and theories exist as to why that is. Uh, happy to go into those, but it's really that they are just not getting into the category in the same levels uh, and with the same consumption pattern. So even those who do get into the category, they won't drink as frequently, they won't drink as intensely, um, and just less of them getting in. So, And that has a big sort of knock-on effect. I mean, there's obviously the, the way that the, the pyramid will evolve with time, but there is a knock-on effect because as those people enter the the economy, if you will, and I'm not talking just alcohol, they're obviously interacting with people slightly older than, so younger millennials, and and then it's having a, not a consequence there. So younger millennials also tend to drink and engage with alcohol less than older millennials. And so it's sort of, because generations aren't, there's no hard line, right? Um, it's a gradation of, of shifting, shifting attitude. So that's the biggest thing that, that impacts it. But then beyond that, again, what they choose to engage with and the way that they engage is also sort of starting to shift the market. So there's a greater consciousness of what goes into a product. So there's a greater awareness of, uh, I mean, at the most basic calories and sort of sugar content, but Increasingly now additives, um, all sorts of, all manner of sort of in incremental products that could be in your beverages are more, more known and more avoided in many cases. So it's, we often call it conscious consumption. So even in instances where people are still choosing to engage with a product or a category or a brand, they may know it's not ideal for them, it's not perfect, but they're choosing to make that decision but consciously, they're like, yeah, okay. I know this thing has got more additives than I'd like, but I love the taste and all of my friends are drinking it. So whatever, I'm going to go with it. But as a result, tomorrow and the next day, I'm going to do like a little mini detox and I'm going to avoid these sort of things. So there's a lot more of that behavior that's coming through, which is making brand owners a lot more conscious of what they need to do. There's still largely no requirement to share detailed ingredient information on alcoholic beverages. So that sort of, I wouldn't say bypasses the problem, but I think it's it's potentially sort of a challenge that brand owners are kind of kicking the can down the road that will likely come. Um, so I know from a prior life, um, working at one of the, the bigger, bigger manufacturers, there were internal work streams that were literally just how do we clean up the recipes of products? How do we remove things so that we're on the front foot? So if legislation does come down that it has to be clearly put on the label, we're not then furiously trying to figure out how to uh, how to align. So, and then that that then is the sort of subset to like the whole health and wellness. So health and wellness is the is the the big trend that gets spoken of that 
all of these other aspects are kind of sitting underneath. So you'll hear what's the health and wellness trend and that just manifests in so many different ways. And many of them are often not data driven because <laughs> consumers aren't generally looking at the scientific evidence for what's, what's going on. They react to what they hear, what friends say. And so they'll often sort of make decisions on um, what's good versus bad based off of not a lot. And the prime example there would be um, hard seltzer versus beer. So the one of, there were many drivers for the hard seltzer craze, but one of was, well, it's healthier than beer because it's just water and alcohol, right? So it must be better than beer because beer is beer and we don't even know what's in beer. Now, the scientific evidence could not be more different, right? Beer is four ingredients, very natural, nothing else added. Whereas hot seltzers had all sorts of flavors and, and things added. So the truth was very different, but that doesn't matter because consumers just make their own judgments. So like health and wellness isn't always scientifically driven. Often it's just sort of uh, emotionally driven. So that's the one big trend, uh, moderation, I think what kind of touched on. Um, the other sort of big one that is, has been driving the industry now for so long is premiumization. And I often, again, people often ask about trends and we always, we do put out what we think the big trends are, but these trends are always so closely related to one another because premiumization I mean, on paper, it's like, oh, people are spending more. People are paying more for better products. But people don't want to pay more for things, right? That's just human nature. We're not like, oh, great, I'm going to spend more for the same thing. I'm going to spend more for a more expensive tequila than a cheaper tequila. So the driver for why people are premiumizing is important. And often that is health and wellness, or that is moderation. It's like, I'm going to spend more, but I'm going to drink less. So I drink less, but better. So that's a big, that's been a big driver of premiumization and it connects to moderation because consumers can kind of post-rationalize the spend by saying, well, I did spend a lot more, but I drank less. And so actually that was better for me. So I was investing in my health. Again, post-rationalization. Um, but premiumization is also back to that health and wellness. Rightly or wrongly, people assume a more expensive product is probably better right? Better ingredients, less additives, less chemicals, less whatever. So if I'm spending more, it's also healthier just from that perspective. Um, so that, that then also features, so these things are often sort of so intimately related and premiumization has been going on for so long. Um, it's a good sort of, it's, it slowed down in 08 because um, we looked longitudinally back to like 1990. And premiumization sort of really started picking up in probably the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, and just sort of trended straight up. In 08, stopped. At least the, the, the rapid increase of your premium price tiers like, stopped, but only for about 12 months, 12, 18 months maybe, and then just picked right on up and has not stopped since. So we're seeing now last year it's stopped again. So even though there's not a global financial crisis, global inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So the post-pandemic recovery had had really the same effect. So 2023 was the same type of pattern of like total grind to a halt of premiumization. And so the question that everyone's asking is like, so what happens, what happens this year? What happens next year? Does it does it carry on or is, is the has the train come to a halt? Yeah, I and think now um... you're gonna ask me what I think. <laughs> No, well, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe, but not, not, not directly. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I think like last night I was out to dinner with a longtime friend and we had two NA beers while we were sitting there over dinner, right? I was with a, did a, an event for a client a couple of weeks ago and he said, yeah, I always used to have a glass of wine while I cook dinner. Now he goes, now I have an NA beer while I cook because that hits that craving for me. And so, yeah, I think there's certainly a, a health and wellness aspect, but I do like your idea about the the legislation and then the work that Tequila Matchmaker has done, it's been interesting um, with their kind of, you know, audit of additives. 
it has been interesting because uh, there's even a local retailer here in St. Louis that has basically printed off their list and has used it to tag all of the agave spirits in their store. And it is interesting to see these spirits that are very pricey that are not on that list. And we can we can forego the names, but I do think that even pre-legislation, now you have an independent body that is doing this thing and you can always debate merits of an audit, I guess, but um, but it's like now it's out in the open in terms of how much, like, even if you're still making a great product, why is there added sugar or coloring or these things that you now have to, you're on the back foot having to defend now at some point. And so they were saying that one or two brands that are owned, that would be well-known, I don't need to state them just for fun, but uh, uh, especially since they're, they're probably owned by clients of yours. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, but that those sales in those stores have tanked uh, because people. So it is. It's what it's. It's very interesting to see that trend happen. But to your point, it's not all one for one. You know, quality and pricing. It can be, but it's it's not a one for one. And and I've wondered about that regarding premiumization too. To your point of the post pandemic, when you look at, I was having this conversation the other day. I was out out to lunch with some people, and it was a you know a standard lunch, not a not a not a three martini business lunch. But like the price of a cocktail was only four dollars less than a personal pan pizza. You know, and it's a nice place, mm. but it's like it's it's interesting. At what point in time has this premiumization, and of course the desire at the restaurant level to pay staff well and all these things. But at what point in time have we begun to hit a ceiling of Man, like, I mean, you know, I, I took two two guys out to lunch to have a conversation and without any booze, you know, I mean, it was a, it was almost a hundred dollar lunch, you know, here in, you know, in the middle of the Midwest. So, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I've actually, I've thought about that a lot and I, I sort of personally have reached a similar conclusion. Like it, surely there's got to be a, uh, a limit. Um, I mean, data would suggest Present, present, present time excluded. Data would suggest that's not the case because the same conversation has been had many times over for uh, every level. Right? When the when the super premium vodkas got launched in I don't know that was probably the two thousands. Um, people were like, why would why would anyone pay so much more money for a product that is that there's no discernible taste difference. And yet that did not stop anyone um, from paying, let me not say ludicrous, but paying significant premiums for something that they would have been completely unable to taste the difference of. And that same trend has appeared in multiple categories over time. Like tequila is the latest uh, to be in that space where people will pay $150, $200 a bottle without batting an eyelid. Um, and before that, it was scotch and right, U.S. whiskey is kind of doing the same thing now, innovating a lot. So there's always there's always a uh, market that will pay more and that is happy to pay more. But to your point, I do wonder if the the average starts to kind of become problematic. Um, now, twenty twenty three was was interesting slash challenging and particularly in the US because it was a confluence of a lot of things that kind of came in all at the same time and so it's hard to know like what's the real problem that consumers have, have faced that they reacted to because inflation was very high so all prices were going up including alcohol um, credit card debt is at an all-time high so consumers feel the fact that they're they're more in debt than they've ever been Interest rates are near a record high. So the debt that they have is getting more and more expensive. Um, and then on top of that, manufacturers push through prices in many cases over and above inflation. And so the effect of all of that was, as I said, a, a rapid de decrease in premiumization. So the top, top, top products all really struggled um, and consumers traded down. Or it's actually the data might suggest consumers aren't trading down, they're trading out. So, and what I mean by that is rather than saying, I'm going to buy a cheaper product of the same thing, they're saying, I'm just not going to drink today. 
um, when I do drink, I'm going to keep drinking the expensive things. So that's why the the devil's in the details. And this is like where data is great because you kind of have to cut it to see what's really happening. Because if you just look at the total level, oh my God, premiumization is down. So people just assume that consumers are trading down. But if you look at the, the volume increases at the lower price tiers, there is none. So the people are drinking the so either the people at the bottom end are trade are leaving the category entirely and the people higher up are trading down or everyone's doing a similar thing, which is occasionally or more frequently trading out, doing something different, switching to a, no, no, switching to. So that's definitely happening. I think which of all of those factors, and there's more, right? There's just sort of, there's been geopolitical uncertainty. There's socioeconomic challenges. Like, if you kind of think back at 2023, there's not a lot of positive that came out of 23. <laughs> um, potentially not even 22, because like 22 was a bumper year for the alcohol industry, but it was sort of people were coming, coming off the glow of surviving the pandemic still. And it was just sort of a much, much greater optimism. It just sort of waned towards the end of 2022. And by 2023, there was just not a lot of positive sentiment. So all of these things kind of came together and had this impact. All right, what happens this year? Inflation's coming down. Um, unemployment is still the close to record low. So people have jobs. Prices, in theory, should be normalizing. Um, is that Does that mean then that sort of premiumization ticks back up? Um, or have you created a, a, a structural change? I, I don't know. I. I tend to be one that believes in long-term trends and a trend that's been going for about 25, 30 years, pretty much without pause other than one or two blips, I kind of feel will keep on going. But I, I have asked myself the same question. Of, is there a limit? At some point, do consumers say enough's enough? Mm -hmm. But doesn't appear doesn't appear that that's happened just yet. Yeah, and I hope that along the lines of, you know, like the statement you said earlier, drink less, drink better, you know, one, I would much rather always have a great cocktail for $8 than $16. But if these things also, one, hopefully drives quality of, of, of beverage, hopefully, most of the time. And second, maybe makes us think more about like how much we're consuming as opposed to, oh, it's only three bucks. Great. Let's, let's drink them all day. Hopefully is overall better for just the general health of the individual, maybe less so for the health of the uh, the economy, so to speak. But I think that these are the uh, good questions in that way. I've also wondered, and I don't know if IWSR has, has, has looked at anything like this, that this was one of my musings last night, that it feels right now like cannabis is much more in vogue um, than than alcohol. Alcohol, one, certainly plenty of things. It's it's not done well over the years, even though it's responsible for many good times and great cultural, you know, rituals and whatnot. But I've, I've wondered, uh, my, my question to my friend was, I wonder how much more, quote unquote, sober America really is versus have people, how much have people traded out for, you know, alcohol and traded in for, because the number of people I know who smoke or use you know, gummies, are, and I don't care, but I wonder how much like we've traded one mind-altering substance for another in some some instances. Yeah, God, we get we get asked that all the time. So we we don't track uh, cannabis usage in the same way that we track alcohol. We do we look at kind of what we call alcohol adjacent, um, which has been the sort of your CBD beverages and uh, like adaptogenics and those sorts of things. Like we look at those, but THC specifically, we haven't yet started looking at, but we have started looking at the kind of consumer data. And I, there's a, a lot of studies I think out there. The jury is 100% still out as to um, the the true nature of that interaction. The, the things that we're seeing are a couple of things. The, the There's actually a relatively small proportion of cannabis users um, who don't drink alcohol. So it's only like 10%, I think, um, not even. So the majority of, if, you, if you're if you using cannabis, you probably also drink. Fine. So that's point number one. Um, and there's also, there's and there's only about a third or even less than a third of alcohol drinkers who use cannabis. So the, the, the sort of the overlap of the Venn diagrams is 
not negligible by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's so the question is what happens in that overlap. And again, like juries out, but those consumers tend to be younger, which is unsurprising. They tend to be lower income, which has implications, which I'll come back to in a minute, tend to be heavier drinkers. So to your point, are they trading out one sort of uh, mind, well, mind altering sounds a bit aggressive, but are they trading out one for another? Uh, well, there are already people who tend to be on the heavier drinking side. So, so yes, there probably is some level of substitution effect, but we also know that um, the majority, in the majority of cases where people do use cannabis, they still drink. Um, and part of that is, I mean, if you think about it, like, okay, great. So you take a gummy and now what? Right, you're with your friends, or you, or not, you're like, you're just gonna sit around with empty hands and and just right. talk. So, so consumption still happens. Does it happen at a slightly lesser rate than it would have otherwise? Yeah, possibly. And I think that's what that's what people are trying to figure out: the extent to which um, the one impacts the in, the the volume or the intensity of the other. I think that's that's sort of a, a tricky thing to to unpack. But on the on the lower income piece, like thinking that one through, and this is where we sort of, the data gets sort of murky super quickly. But if you've ever been to a dispensary, you know that cannabis is, legal cannabis is not cheap, right? In terms of economic impact on the wallet, um, it's pretty heavy. So if the, if the data skews towards lower income consumers, like, are they using legal dispensaries? Are they going through formal sure. channels? Or are they probably getting their cannabis the same way they used to? Um, in which case, the legalization or the formalization almost has no bearing on, on the behavior because the behavior was already in existence, right? Because it happened pre-formalization or pre-legalization. Right. And so that portion, again, very unclear, very murky, but it's it's sort of hard to know whether or not there's a direct sort of shift in consumer behavior. So that's the, again, by no means definitive, but it's it's interesting how, it's almost interesting that there is less information on the topic. Now, part of it is because it's, it's something that people don't yet feel super comfortable researching and talking about, but sure. um, we, I think we as a, as a sort of, in this space as an industry, I said the broad industry, I think we need to get a handle on actually as a country, probably need to get a better handle on what's happening and how it's happening. Yeah. And I think uh, to your point, you know, one of the data points I pulled from IWSR said that, um, so talking about your point of substitution, said substitutors accounted for um, 43% of no low, no and low consumers. I think it looked like it was the number. So I if I'm pulling this very quickly, right, it's like the idea that. 43% of people that use no and low alcohol products, you know, they still consume alcohol. And I know a couple of people who sometimes will come out, have some NA beers, but they've already uh, pre-gamed beforehand with their other. So yes, yeah, so, but, but these are also people who still consume alcohol and other subs. You know, so like, I think sometimes I wonder how much the impact and I, we don't need to belabor the point. I just think that there is certainly a little bit of that of, um, People are enjoying this, or it's novel, or it's just more their 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 thing of choice in certain situations anymore. No, but I think you're hitting on a good point there because the the idea of choice is particularly important, and I'm sort of latching a bit onto your NA NA beer point because I think this this single biggest driver. Nah, is it single biggest? Anyway, one of the biggest drivers of NA beer's growth has been the amount of effort that has gone into making products taste better. Like, I, I don't want to mention, again, I don't want to mention any names, but there is a, uh, a very, very widely distributed, uh, one of the first non-alc beers um, in the market that tastes terrible. And no one has ever had it and gone, oh my God, this is delicious. I really want to have another one. Um, and so it's always almost been a, a punishment. Like, I don't mean that, that, that sounds a bit mean, but 
it's like, oh yeah, if you're not drinking, if you're the driver or something like here, your punishment is this product. Um, so you can either drink this thing that doesn't taste good or you can drink a uh, soft drink or water and not be part of the group. Yes. And so the amount of effort that went into actually like improving recipes, improving the flavor profile. So now we're at a point where a lot of these NA products are fantastic. They taste great. And if you didn't know, for a lot of them, if you didn't know it was non-alcoholic, particularly for beers, that's, that doesn't hold true for the spirits and wine yet. Right. But for the beers, like, you didn't know. Uh, and so that's changed the game considerably because suddenly you can go out, you're still having a, a beverage that's part of the group, it's part of the occasion, it's an adult beverage, it tastes great, and yet you're getting all of those benefits. So you suddenly you, you've provided consumers choice. So that's the one, the one lens. The other lens is just, as the category grows and more of the bigger players get into it, um, availability improves. And availability improves particularly around, I mean, the US is still a draft beer market when you go out. Um, but you used to, if you were getting non-alc, you had to get a bottle because that was the only option you had. That's now starting to shift, right? The mm -hmm. US is still way behind um, Europe and, and other places in terms of the availability of um, on-tap non-alc. But it's starting to grow. And that's also going to shift things where you can actually start to have something on tap because then people don't even see the label, right? That's the that's the thing. Like, Why, why do non-alc uh, cocktails do well? Um, it's because people don't know that it's non-alc. And right. sometimes, it, again, as, as, as drinking non-alc becomes more accepted, I think that stigma will go away. But it's still present. It's still there. Uh, and particularly with younger consumers who, who actually do care, there's more of that peer pressure element. And so getting to a point at which everyone around you doesn't see that you're drinking that non-alc is important. So that's why the non-alc cocktails have done well. And I think why if getting more product on tap in, in, in bars and restaurants will definitely have a positive impact. Um, and it'll just continue to grow once, once you've kind of gotten over that taste. Um, beer has done it. I don't think spirits is there yet. I don't think wine is there yet. Um, but beer had a good 20, 30 year head start. So it's not surprising that they cracked the code before the others did. Yeah, I agree. I think some of the NA uh, bitters, like, you know, a la Campari, in my yeah. opinion, are, are getting, are, are good, real good. But I would agree, most of the NA spirits, like if you're not mixing it with something like that's, and maybe they're just, they, it will just never be there. We'll see. Because um, a lot of the companies will be like, this is not even how it's intended to be consumed. But regardless, um, yeah, that they still have a way to go. But the NA beers are are fantastic. Um, but then or... back, back to the earlier, the, the premiumization point. I went out recently with some with some friends and we all got non-alc cocktails. This was, it was in London, but that's not even there. But I mean, they were like 10 pounds for a non-alc cocktail. Right. And we all we all at the end of the drink, we're sitting there looking at one another, kind of going, uh, was that right. worth it? So I think I think your that point as it relates to non-alc is even more relevant. And it's interesting how the pricing in non-alc has evolved, because certainly in beer. Almost all of the non-alcoholic alternatives are premium to their alk uh, counterparts. Yes. So, and that's that's despite the fact that the manufacturers um, get tax breaks. So the profitability of it, it's a little bit more expensive to make because you've got to get the alcohol out, but then you get a tax break. So that improves, and then you have the alcohol that you can do other things with. So, like non-alcoholic manufacturers are, are super supportive of non-out because it makes them a, a lot of money but it's just interesting how the price points are higher not lower despite the fact that you've taken something out which i think from a marketing standpoint is quite important because you need to you do want to communicate through price that this is a product that is worth right. the money and not oh we've taken stuff out so we're going to give you a discount kind of thing because then it's a double a double mental incentive or double mental message that I've taken something out and it's cheaper. So this is inferior. So trying to sort of balance that is, is definitely been a challenge. And I think it's prob probably why the prices remain so high and I suspect will stay that way. Yeah. I, uh, 
former podcast guest warped uh broke out the big uh, science term of veblen good and he's like yeah he goes these are these things um no one has a good reason for why other than it's like why does an hermes bag cost what it does like is the leather really that much better it's like no it's a brand thing and like that's and so i think the one thing i'm i'll be curious about in terms of the real I'm here for the trend and it'll be interesting to see how it continues to grow. The one thing I'll be interested to see with the at-home spirits and outside of beer and wine consumption is with the shelf life on those spirits bottles. I don't know if people are going to be drinking NA gin and tonics or NA Aperol spritzes where I've had a bottle of NA bitter go bad on me before I pulled it down off the shelf and there's the floater on the top. And so I'll be interested to know based on the shelf life, if, if consumers are as quick to it, it I'm sure that sales and for bars and restaurants will do well. I'll be interested to see what it looks like in retail long term. I'll be honest, I've never thought about that. Um as you were talking, I was just like, wow, I hadn't considered shelf because you're right, the spirits wine industry to some extent, but even them, but the spirits industry's never had to think about that as a challenge. It's one of one of the reasons why the spirits industry has often struggled to get into the RTD space because they're creating products with a shelf life and they just, they don't know how to sell that. Their supply chains are designed without time really factored in, right? Hmm. If it takes six months for the product to get from A to B, it doesn't really matter. Um, with RTDs, it really does because by then it could be off and you're done. Um, whereas the beer guys have always known that it's, built into the way that their business model works. So it's interesting. I wonder if if you, I mean, the only way you can solve that is um, pack size. Not the only, but pack size, right? Yeah. You're not going to buy 750 ml. You're going to go for a 375. Mm -hmm. Half the size until the frequency gets to the point at which a 750. But again, there's the, I guess the research component to get the, Get to getting the taste right, there'll be as much thought and effort that goes into stabilizing the the product. Yeah. But then you have the additives challenge. Man, yeah. I don't envy these guys. Well, just tell Diageo I'm around if they need to talk. Uh, but uh, so, I, you know, knowing that again, you guys typically operate at that level of Diageo and Heiser Bush at that level for in whatever way you care to run with this, and hopefully. Well, bars, restaurateurs, craft brands listening have already kind of had the chance to think about this. But if you were a smaller company and you're not ready for an IWSR level engagement, but when it comes to like data, thinking about trends or whatever, are there are there suggestions you would have for smaller brands or retail establishments in terms of how they begin to think about being a little bit smarter about analyzing their market, you know, using using data, what, what, whatever way you want to run with that? Yeah, I thought about this a bit before um, before the call. It's a, it's an interesting one. I, I, I mean, I've kind of been in data pretty much most of my career in some way, shape, or form. Um, so I love I love data, um, but it's just a tool. Uh, I think where where people often get tripped up is sheer volume of data so data is great and there's a sort of general sense that more is better um but i don't i'm not in that camp um i tend to find often the more data you have the more that just results in paralysis because it will often conflict um and so trying to sort of unpack the conflicts ends up creating more turmoil and indecision than having an inferior data set but it's clear about what to do about it. And so the way I've always, I mean, I was in consulting previous, I guess I'm still in consulting, but I always had a, 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 a mantra, if you will, which is I don't care what decision a client makes as long as they make one. And I'm perfectly okay, them probably a little bit less, but I'm perfectly okay with that decision being wrong because once you've made it, you'll learn fairly quickly whether or not it's right. And that information is far more important than the data that generated the decision to begin with. 
Now, of course, the bigger the company gets, the more impactful the decision is, the more there, there's analysis. But once you go to a smaller level, my view has always been, like, there's no such thing as perfect data and there's no such thing as a perfect answer. So use what you get and make the decision quickly and then try and fail quickly or ideally succeed. But if you're gonna fail, try and fail quickly, but just make the decision and move, move with that, knowing what the data was. And so typically what I'll do is like use a small data set, use whatever data you have. I mean, there's so much, the US never has a, a data lack. If anything, there's too much and much of it is bad, but there's always information out there to answer all sorts of, of questions. So spend as much time thinking about the question you want to answer um, as the as trying to get the data. Because too often you sort of, you're not clear on really what problem you're solving. And then you go look for all sorts of data and then you're just spinning your wheels because it's just not clear what direction to go in. So be very clear like what specific question you want. Get the data that's as good as you can get that allows you to make a decision and make a decision. And then track that, right? Record what you did and why you did it. So I, I saw this data, I made this assumption and I made this decision as a result. And then when it goes wrong, you can go back and say, okay, well, what was wrong about it? Was my, my assumption of the, the implication wrong or was the data wrong? Um, and it usually becomes pretty clear based on kind of what went wrong. And so that's sort of my view. And even smaller companies, like maybe they don't have the, the wealth of information at their fingertips, but they do have a lot of data, right? Particularly if you're looking at kind of bars and restaurants, they've got daily sales data. Like they know better than anyone what consumers are interested in. Um, and so their challenge isn't so much what's... Um, what's of interest to consumers because they know it's more a question of like, is there anything we're missing? Is there any sort of big trend that is out there that I just simply don't have the product for to satisfy? And then to that end, you kind of have your, uh, your bartender, your wait staff, whatever that might be, who actually engage with consumers. You can always use them to ask, right? I mean, what is data? It's, it's research. It's talking to people. Like, well, if you're in the industry of talking of, of having people come to you, uh, it's not that hard to just ask people to just, hey, look, somehow find a way to ask these two questions. Figure out a way to ask these two questions while you're out there. And you you just turn your staff into uh, serve, uh, what do you call it, researchers. You just turn them into survey researchers. Um, and then you collect that information. And again, you decide what to do about it, make the decision. And you've got that immediate feedback loop of daily sales data that gets you sort of response quickly. So I don't know. I, I again, I love data. and But I also know that I can give me a data set and I can prove two completely opposing arguments with no difficulty. <laughs> it's It's really, really not hard. So it's more important to... Be clear on what your assumption was and what hypothesis you were testing and don't let the data distract you too much because in this day and age, uh, you can get anyone to prove anything in any way you want. Um, so that's that's my view. In my, uh, in my previous life, um, having made a pretty massive career pivot, but yeah, when I used to work in strategic planning, uh, our data guy would often come out and he would be holding a metaphorical chart for the people that can't see this. And he would just be like, so do you want the data to say this? Or then he would flip his arms like and invert the chart like, or this. And so, yes, I think data yeah. is useful. It can also be a four letter word when we treat it as dogma or religion. And um, I'm actually reading a book right now that basically kind of makes this point of like, yeah, don't be afraid to make bets, but like one, try to have a good view on things. Don't be afraid to act or not act, but like also make sure that you're not like betting the farm on a, you know, you can run an experiment as long as the downside isn't. And then we go out of business, you know, like how do you, you know, oh, you're thinking about trying out your own rum brand. Okay. Like commit, commit to making a small run. Don't like, all right, let, how much can we afford? Great. Do that much, you know? So I think, mm -hmm. you know, to your point, acting, um, using the reports you have on hand that you may or may not be looking at, but, um, but don't sit around over, over mulling that idea. There was, when I was 
uh, I worked, uh, anyway, previous life in a re revising the innovation process. And I mean, there was a massive project, but really what we did was one simple thing. In term, in the innovation process, this was obviously product development, but it's applicable to almost anything. There's always questions that people have. It's like, oh, this is, I want to know this. I want to know whether or not um, younger consumers will like my product. Right? Or I want to know whether or not uh, my product is consumed during the day or at night. Like simple questions like that. And what we did is we said, okay, we, I want you to flip that. I want you to turn it into a hypothesis. I want you to say, I believe that my product is consumed by, boom. I believe that my product is consumed during the day. And you sort of turn it away from questions because questions, there's always more questions. You turn it into a hypothesis, a belief of how right or wrong it is. And then you go down all of those beliefs and you say, well, how confident am I in this? How, I, to what extent do I believe this thing is really true or am I really just, this is wishful thinking? And then you rank order them. And you're like, oh, right, at the bottom are the things that I know are like pretty much true. Like those, I'm not worried about those. And then right at the top are the things that, mm, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, my business could tank. Okay, that's where you need to spend your effort. That's where you need to go and spend a bit of research, time, money, whatever it is to sort of prove rightly or wrongly that statement. And by ch changing it from a question to a statement, you're proving a thing. And it's either right or wrong. You're like, oh, no, my product is not consumed by younger consumers. It's actually being consumed by like middle-aged women. Oh. Okay, great. That's, I mean, that's incredibly powerful because now you're like, okay, that completely changes my mental model. And then you can kind of go back and say, okay, well, does that change any of my other, with that in mind, does anything else down this list sort of get, get shaken up? Um, and if no, you're like, okay, great. So actually the rest of my business plan is solid. Uh, it's just this first thing. So I just need to think about my marketing slightly differently. Great. But it's sort of just flipping it from a question to a statement. It removes a lot of the noise because there's always more questions. Because once you go like, oh, my, I, is my is my product consumed by younger consumers? Okay, well, then the next one is like, is my product consumed by younger men or younger women? Is my product consumed by, um, like, there's always kind of more rabbit holes to go down, whereas when you make it a statement, you can still, obviously, you can make more statements, but it starts to get pointless. It starts to get very repetitive, and you can very quickly go, okay, well, now I'm wasting my time. So it's, it's a great tool to just focus focus in on Okay, I only need data to answer these three things, not the forty-five things I thought previously. Mm. Makes me think of uh, what's it? There's a, a a positing question out there. It's like, what would have to be true in order for you to change your mind? And so I think, like, you know, yeah. uh, to think about your hypothesis and how do you prove or disprove it? But kind of, but yeah, I like your idea that um, uh, I can be get overly caught up in the question. And so yeah, trying to like turn this into a working thing that we're going to try to prove or disprove at this point is um is good yeah is there i mean we've covered a lot and this has been great so far is there anything that's come to mind while we've been talking martin that we haven't chatted about at all i think what would the initial sort of questions that you'd you know, yeah, it's like overall, like the questions I sent, I feel like we've done a good job at covering those. Um, and yeah, so I feel like, you know, so here's maybe one of the things. So you had, you, you had mentioned something about uh, Gen Z earlier on and kind of the follow-on generations and that their worldview. And again, this is like you, you've said all along, like what the data can and can't tell us and the things we wish we'd know if we knew we'd all, you know, we'd all be living independently on our super yachts or maybe we wouldn't need one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I heard a guy who owns a, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, tiki bars talking about younger consumers and kind of their drifting away from that. Like, are there any thoughts right now about is like, is this, you know, a trend? Is this something people find their way back to? Do people think, I mean, maybe it's just all postulating at this point in time, but in terms of people's outlook on this, is this where they all come in on it or, or, or do we think it'll ever change back? And, and, and maybe that's just too big of a 
hypothetical to even know? Yeah, I mean, that is that, that really is the question because younger consumers entering the category late, I mean, from a manufacturer standpoint, not ideal, but as long as they enter. Never entering, that's, that's where it becomes problematic. I'd certainly, I don't have the answer and I can argue it in both directions. I, I can very comfortably argue both, both outcomes. Um, I think, I mean, trying to be, I guess, more helpful than unhelpful is thinking of it as there are only those two outcomes, right? They either are going to engage with the category at a later date or they are not. And so when you think about your strategy, that's in some ways simpler than having like a lot of shades of gray because it allows you to sort of say, well, okay, so if they never enter the category, then is there anything that I can do to be relevant or to increase relevance and to get those consumers without diversifying into an entirely different industry that I don't have the skill set to. And the answer to that question, I think, is yes or no, like depending on I guess, where you are. Non-elk is what would seem to be the obvious common ground. Um, but we also know that still look at them as adult beverages. And so they're, they're just anti that conceptually, it doesn't matter the fact that there is no actual alcohol in the product. So you kind of have that. Whereas if they are just going to come in later, then, then really what matters is, well, when they, when they do enter the category, do they enter it behaving like the generation they're replacing or do they enter it behaving like th their generation, which is going to be attitudinally and behaviorally different to prior generations? So then there's sort of some, I guess, knock on questions, but I mean, yeah, it's a thoroughly unhelpful answer, but um, I, I really wish I knew. I, I think I would have one of those super yachts if I knew the answer to this question. Sure, you, you would, and yeah, you know, I probably, I probably picked an impossible question to ask. So yeah, no, this is, um, it's been great and honestly given me a lot to think about, which has been great. I love the idea of question into hypothesis is I think great in terms of how do we, and again, just, you know, businesses put money on the line for all these things. But at the end of the day, like it's, it's, it's time to make a decision to act or to not act. And as opposed to like wavering in this middle ground. And um, so, yeah, no, uh, thank you for taking the yeah, time today. Uh, go ahead, please. No, you, you, you said an interesting point there, which I think is worth reemphasizing. Deciding to not act is a decision. Um, I, I think most most companies or people don't realize that that sort of delaying, uh, putting it off, looking for the perfect answer is making a decision because you're you're giving up the opportunity to learn something that making the decision would have uncovered. Uh, and admittedly, sometimes those things can be bad, right? I'm not saying that making a decision is always going to result in a good outcome. Uh, in fact, probably more often than not, it'll result in a bad outcome. But if you ever read any books from inspirational leaders, there's always a common theme, which is fail, 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 and eventually you'll succeed. The difference between a success and a failure is one more attempt. Uh, sure. So. Yeah, and I, but I was reading a journalist one time with the Wall Street Journal who said, yeah, that a lot of times businesses act when they shouldn't. And so, yeah, I think sometimes it's, so yeah, I think it's, you know, but I, either way to, I think our point, it is, you know, you can also pass up on one experiment for another, but I, I digress here. So uh, if people want to know more, uh, iwsr.com, I believe is our website right here. Any other ways that people should get in touch, keep in touch, or what, what, what do you have for us if, for parting words? We, oh, I hadn't thought about parting words. Um, no, I mean, have a look. We've got a lot of, I actually think one of the more interesting uh, products, yeah, that sounds salesy, but um, 
Iristar does a lot of what we call strategic studies that looks in at very specific topics. So we've got one that looks specifically at no and low alcohol. We've got one that looks specifically at um, status spirits, which is actually really interesting. So it's like things above $200. So starting at $200 and going up. It's a whole different world. Super, super interesting. It's a world I don't get to engage with very much. Uh, but really, really interesting what happens there and just how different the, the I was going to say business model. It's not even the business model. How just how different the uh, perspectives are of what's happening. And I actually think often those reports are super, super interesting um, if you're looking at like kind of understanding specific topics. But yeah, otherwise, um, I mean, reach out. Reach out to Ibisar. We do we do a lot of like we have a database, but we do a lot of sort of custom consulting work as well, helping clients with very specific problems. And that can be big, that can be small. Um, we're pretty we're pretty open. We're pretty flexible. Budge. Uh, we try and be. We try and help everyone. We we, we for, for me. I mean, I've been in the industry now for a really long time. Uh, I love being in the industry. Uh, I wanted to succeed. Um, I think there's challenges on the horizon. Uh, big ones. So anything to help uh, the industry be more successful, I'm all for. Wonderful. Uh, well, thanks for taking the time today to chat. This was, uh, this was honestly, it's a lot of fun. Great. No, I agree. This was great. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, so hopefully, hopefully there's some, something useful in that um, for, for your listeners. But yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed this. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.